and you could you could sense uh, like the, I have this one photograph of a woman who's walking by in front of a window, mm-hmm. and I saw it. the The window had some I, I it had some sort of design on it, and and the part of the design or the poster or whatever had been torn off okay. in patches, and the patches went dun 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 dun, and I saw her coming, and I lifted the camera and just right when she walked in front of the window and what happened was she's kind of blurred as she's coming by me but those little patches mm-hmm. are coming right out of her mouth <laughs> and it it's just I, I don't know if it's something that I, I grew into after making photographs for so long I was always very deliberate about making yes. pictures yeah and then all of a sudden there was this decisive moment spontaneity that kind of jumped out yeah. things just presented themselves at the at the right moment I have another one from Beijing where there's um, I just walked along the sidewalk and I look across the street and there's a bus stop across the street and you know at bus stops they have advertisements right. on the on the back right and I, I look across there and there are these uh, the big posters of these gorgeous, beautiful white women okay and it's an ad for makeup or something like mm-hmm. that and standing in front of that mm-hmm. at the bus stop are these more I don't know I, I don't want to sound insulting or something but <laughs> these more these more regular looking sure Chinese Ordinary, women. yeah right and and they had it was the end of the day they were obviously waiting for the bus to, to go home they were wearing jeans and and they were uh, if the if the the poster is behind me yeah. and I'm over there, the 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 poster is looking square into the lens, and these women are standing at the bus stop looking, this all of them looking that way, mm-hmm. waiting for the yeah, bus, they're and they're wearing jeans and they got yeah. their purse. And I thought, what an amazing um, sort of counterpoint yes. with contrast. These, what, here we are in China, and you have a poster with white models which is weird <laughs> and, and then these these chinese women that were that were you know just your average right, everyday looked person like that, looking posters. nothing like that yes and it was just perfectly timed there they're standing and they're just waiting for the bus um i i always loved that notion of decisive moment but i never really thought of myself as doing it till i was in china and now these things pop up all the time to me. So you were like in a zone? Yeah. For one thing, it was one of the things that happened when we made the, when, during the Legacy Project was the transition, the major transition from film to digital. When we started in the Legacy Project, it was 2002, and everybody was still pretty much doing film and a little bit of digital. Okay. But over the time that, that we worked, it transitioned to digital. Okay. And once once it was there, my my main camera until I was 50 plus years old was a 4x5 view camera. Mm-hmm. And you don't do spontaneous things with a with a view right. camera. So not on purpose. No. <laughs> no, although I I actually have decisive moment 4x5 images too, but not not as many, but it, once it transitioned over to digital and I and I got my first real good digital SLR 
and the image quality was so good, yeah. it, it allowed for you to just go boom. Right. Rather than pull the legs on a tripod, set the camera on it, get under the dark cloth, yeah. and do, which I loved, Yes. but it, it changed, changed the world. Right. Digital right. did. Did did Cartier? Was there another component of him? You know, would it be that he had a fine art background? That he, that you know, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I don't know that much about him personally. I just have always loved the work. He was a, a founding member of Magnum, uh, right. photojournalist, and uh, you know, journalism people are oriented toward that instant thing. But yeah. he he just had an uncanny knack for anticipation because if you if you try to react to something that's happening you will be late exactly you have to meet it so you have to see it coming right so you can push the button at the right time and he just had an uncanny knack for that I know that um, Gary Winogrand also right right so do you do that ever these days do you do you because it sounds like street photography to me it is yeah yeah yeah. So do you do that to this day at yeah. all? Yeah, I yeah. love that stuff. Yeah. Because now I can, I, I used to have to walk around with the view camera attached to the tripod and have the, the whole thing slung over my shoulder and then have a bag. Right. And that just takes forever. To, and it takes all the spontaneity out of the situation. It does. Of people, because you, you're, you're a scene, you've you got this gigantic machine and you're... Yeah, you know, and people, you know... They act differently. They do, they come up to you. And what is that? What are you doing? And th that, <laughs> I kind of liked that when I first got going mm -hmm. because it, you know, gets you attention. Yes. But after a while, it's better to be unassuming. Right. Fly on the wall. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Winogrand used to, he was, in many ways, he was not unassuming. He would come up to people, and you know how everybody has their personal space? Uh -huh. He would come up to people and just step into their personal space mm. that he never met before. Mm -hmm. Like if, if you and I were having this conversation, mm -hmm. he'd walk right up here. Okay. And then we'd get uncomfortable because who the hell are you? Yes. And then he would make the picture. Mm -hmm. And he'd hold the camera so that because as soon as you do this, you know there's a picture going to be taken. Yes. He wouldn't do that. So he would just hold the camera down here, and right. when you did something, the button would push. I remember that. And yeah. didn't, didn't he, wasn't he the one that acted like the camera was broken many times? If he was going to take your picture, oh, this darn camera. Need, yeah. Because he wanted you to act natural. Yeah. And then he'd get a few shots in before he even, when he does that, he's not even taking the shot. He's, right. And Edward Weston did that, too. He did that with an 8x10 view camera. Oh, okay, okay. He, right. had, he had an 8x10 view camera in the studio, and he would do portraits, mm -hmm. and the, the people would be sitting there, and he'd be, uh, 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 and, and they would, because an 8x10 view camera with film holders and all that uh, was unfamiliar yes. to people. They wouldn't know what was going on. Yes. And so he'd be going all around it, and, and they would at some point get uh, impatient and say, well, when are we going to start? And that's when he would say, oh, we're done. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> but everybody now knows the sound of a shutter, mm -hmm. and you, you can't fire a camera shutter without somebody recognizing that a picture's being made. Right. And right. On, like on your phone, 
um, the phone has the same sound, mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. just, you can turn it off. Yes, right. So you can be completely clandestine. You can just right. be taking pictures and nobody's gonna know mm -hmm. unless you take the phone and put it up here, yep. then that's the giveaway. Right, you know? right. So when they're holding a camera and they're walking around and they're, I do this with skateboard photography, but I'm using a fish, so it's a gigantic shot. But so they know, like if they're, if they're used to using a 35 mil lens, they know just when I'm holding it here, this is where the 35 is. And they kind of, and they yeah. memorize that basically. They've seen it so many times, they just can just hold it anywhere and sort of yeah. know what they're going to get. Yeah. 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 They don't have to look in there. They know what's going to be there. I mean, the horizon might be slightly off or sure. something. But, but that adds in that sense, that adds to the spontaneity. But look at that car. Oh, how cool. This is a wonderful little, it's like a shortcut, isn't this, the street? It's kind of a Yeah, shortcut. I don't even know the name of it. I, I don't know if it's a continuation of Yorba Linda Boulevard. And when or, you get off the freeway, you come this way, and then you go here, and it's a shortcut to certain parts of Fullerton over here. Because I used to go to a skate park in Brea quite often. Yeah, yeah it's a shortcut. It, rather than turn left on State College and uh -huh. go down to Dorothy Lane or down to Chapman, this cuts you kind of diagonally through. And it's a nice little park. It spills out into like a little neighborhood right over here, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 There's a Catholic church over there, and uh, right, the and there's Acacia Elementary School, oh, and yeah. um, and then it's housing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is a wonderful spot. Wait till I don't know if you're going to hear this or not, but the plane's going to be on our <laughs> image, and the cars are in our image, our audio image. But um, so now when I when I um, had when I did when I took your class we did the blindfold thing I you know I processed the images and I cut them up and and I was like I don't know if I got my best shot you know and then I showed them to you and you looked at it for like two seconds and you said that one it was just a picture of a man kind of in the shot he was sort of at a diagonal and so I went and printed it and then you you got me I'd show it to you and you told me brighter darker change the filter whatever and we got it it was pretty good and when I printed it and you held it in your hand, you went like that and you're like that and I, you know, <laughs> he flipped it over and I was like, you know, I just became a fan of yours when that happened. <laughs> well, that's your, very flattering. Of your eye, you know, like, um, what do you figure developed that for you? Did you take art classes? Do you just have an eye thing? Do you look at a lot of paintings? Like why, why is it that when you look at an image, you can see this thing that I can't see. Well, I don't know that you can't see it. I, I think maybe that comes over a period of time. Uh, and it's all the things that you mentioned. It's art classes, it's experience, it's learning the compositional guidelines. Um, uh, art school um, teaches you, if, if you're open to it, it teaches you many different ways of looking at things and I'm a big fan of abstraction and abstraction deals with how in many ways with how things are mm -hmm. arranged within the rectangle or whatever shape you're, you're working with okay. and they just become shapes rather than things that you attach that then a specific object that you attach a meaning to you know like a, a person doesn't have to be a person 
they can be a shape in the in the composition um, and I when I first got started in photography um, I I was exposed initially to Edward Weston, Ansel Adams, yeah. Brett Weston, those the West Coast F sixty four people, and one of the one of the ones that I was most attracted to was Brett Weston because the images were generally more they weren't less detailed but they were more intense and more contrasty, mm. and there were some that were abstraction images or abstract images that I. I really struggled to figure out, and because I think photographers all want to go, well, what's that? What is that? We're locked into that somehow, and mm. and I would look at the picture and I go, there's something odd about this. Something doesn't make sense here. And suddenly, I I, I remember having a book open, uh, and I it, it was just open on a table. And I went to do something else, and I came from the other side, and I looked at it, and I saw it upside down. And then I realized that he was making them upside down. <laughs> and it just, it just went ding. Light bulb. Light bulb. He was intentionally take, he was making the print, but when he would mount it and mat it, it was upside down on the board. So when you looked at it, you were seeing something that was more mysterious because you were seeing it upside down. You didn't necessarily, you didn't recognize that it was upside down. Right. You were like, how, how does that work? How did he make that picture? And it, and it allowed you to ask questions. And if, and if pictures, rather than just looking at it and going, oh, if, if pictures create questions in your mind, you will look at them longer and you will become more involved with them. And so I just kind of started turning things. And, and in particular, the blindfold ones, because we're used to seeing something and making a photograph. Yeah. You had no clue what you were photographing if you were blindfolded. <laughs> right. You just made a, made a picture. Just making pictures. So you, you had the ability then to just treat it not as something that you captured from the world, but it's just a picture. Right. And so now how are you going to work with just the picture? Because that's all it is to you. You don't have any uh, preconceived notion. When I made it, I didn't have a preconceived notion. No, because you didn't know what didn't you know made. what it looked like. Yeah. That's so cool. And I, I, don't, I, you know, I don't remember the, the particular class that you were in, but I know that when we did that assignment, a lot of times people literally would have the camera and would feel their way around okay and they would touch trees or something and then oh. they would oh i didn't you know, do that yeah. uh, so everybody everybody kind of took to it in a little i just bit believe that way. there's some mysterious truth to what you're telling us i just kind of <laughs> <laughs> well I, hopefully there was <laughs> I, I don't know <clears throat> yeah but the that assignment became kind of famous on campus because uh people would see us out people with cameras and blindfolds and it didn't make sense <laughs> but it does to them but it but it does make sense <laughs> well i loved it it was uh it affected my my approach you know and well doing you know skateboard stuff you have to be quick 
and you have to be spontaneous yep. and you have to have but you have to have all the stuff kind of built in you have to you have to be able to do things without thinking it through yep. it's just an automatic it is you know because that's decisive moment it is photography it is. right I mean I, I because I'm a skateboarder if, if we're in a half pipe and I'm shooting something like Tony Hawk I can tell what he's gonna do by me close to me by what he does over there because they have to get ready to come and do the trick yes so where they put their feet if they're close together or if they're wide apart if they do a certain trick where they jump in the air that's because they're trying to get more speed and I, I have a pretty good idea they're going to do an air in front of me that way. So I'm always reading them way ahead. Like music, when you sight read, you kind of read ahead. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a similar thing. Um, but yeah, that... that um, how about color theory? Do you have any thoughts on color theory? Like how it applies to photography or... I, I Only on an unconscious level, I think. Um, like again, when I first got involved in photography, the people that I that first inspired me were black and white people, mm -hmm. and I, w I was a color person. Although I, I and I still make a lot of black and white photographs more mm -hmm. more so now in recent years. Mm -hmm. But I was a color person, and I, so I responded more to that. Mm -hmm. And when I got involved in photography, particularly in the arts, color was not cool. Right. Um, it, it was a rarity. In fact, I remembered somebody, somebody recommended that I show work to a, a curator uh, at a gallery, and I, <clears throat> so I made an appointment and I went over there and <clears throat> and uh, showed showed work to this guy, and he he was polite and patient, and went through all the pictures and looked at them, and when he had looked at them all, he, you know, I was kind of looking like, well, so. What do do? Are you do you want to give me a show or something like that? I didn't ask the question specifically, but he just looked at him and I said, I, I I think I said sort of, well, what do you think? And he said, well, they're color. In my head, in my head, I'm going, <laughs> yeah, I'm aware. <laughs> uh, and he said, we 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 wouldn't show color here, so. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, so it was looked down upon. It was looked down upon. Yeah, hmm. yeah, it was. It was the like the bastard stepchild of <laughs> photography and back in the seventies, and for in some sense for relatively good reason because color processes, although they'd been around for a while, color processes were largely not permanent. They would, so they, change they would as change they would sit over, on the yeah, wall. like sit on the wall. Uh, they were sensitive to light, and that would change the colors. It wasn't until a thing called Cibachrome came out, um, which ultimately became Ilfachrome, um, that that color processes were permanent. But Cibachrome was difficult to uh, to process. It was a direct positive color thing so you used slide film rather than color negative film mm -hmm. and you printed it onto this ultra shiny super glossy uh, paper and it was very contrasty okay. and you had to very often you had to make uh, masks for your individual transparencies that, right? that would reduce the contrast okay. so, so it was very contrasting. very dark room intensive stuff I don't know if you 
I, I don't know how long you were around there. I don't know if you ever met um, Jerry Birchfield. No. Uh, Jerry and and maybe you met Mark Chamberlain. I don't know. No, I didn't meet Mark. Uh, and Mark just passed away too. That's what I heard. Yeah. Uh, Jerry and Mark had a, a lab down in Laguna Beach called BC Space Birchfield Chamberlain, and they specialized in doing cibachrome uh, printing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if the, this is what happened or not. Jerry Jerry's hair turned from dark to silver at a very young age. At a, at a and okay. um, you know like when he was thirty. Okay. And um, <laughs> he I, I know that in the dark room they they did hand they hand processed the prints. And the superchrome chemistry was pretty obnoxious yes. stuff. And he yeah. would stand over the, the the tank and be lifting the print, and he'd be breathing those fumes. I don't know if that's so what made his hair turn white or not. Environmental. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we didn't think about that crap back in those days. We, like, in in black and white, um, m- most of us who were sort of classically trained in black and white did developer stop fix, then a second fix, and then we would generally tone the prints in a uh, toner that's based on selenium. Okay. Well, selenium is a, in, in trace amounts is a required nutrient. Um, but in non-trace amounts, it's a toxic okay. thing. And we would have our hands in these trays of selenium toner sure. all day long. What goes on your skin goes in your body. It's absorbed through your skin. Yeah. And you know, ho- hopefully it's not going to kill me. I, I haven't, I haven't touched selenium You're doing in pretty good. decades. <laughs> but I, I remember thinking about it, and even the developer, the, the the print developers that we that we used to use, you know, people use tongs. I never could do tongs. I always had to have my hand in the tray, yeah, and with the liquid. And 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 I remember, um, I, I don't remember which hand it was now, but I remember the developer that I was using turned my fingernails black. Really? Yeah. So I had one hand that I had all black fingernails. <laughs> that was, that could be construed as a cool thing if you were a certain age, you know. It's back age. in the day, yeah. <laughs> Why are your fingernails? Oh, it's the developer that I use. And oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Cool, huh? Right. <laughs> And and that was a, there was there was a developer I didn't use it there was a developer called Amidal, which um, which is what Weston used mm-hmm. and his fingernails and Brett's fingernails too, were jet black, oh. more so than mine. I mean they were so like it, you, they you, were black like your T-shirt. Oh, so do you reckon it dyed it or did it did it have some interaction with the actual metaphysical part of your body? Why you could it? It did, it, you couldn't scrape it off? You couldn't okay. No, so. Hmm. So yeah, I just changed the wow. That's the, a little scary. The protein, <laughs> you know. But you love that, didn't you? I mean, that. I, the other story I tell about you is that you helped me print a photo on one of those Epson printers, and like what you did with that thing, with just like levels and maybe a curve thing, which I've saved. I have it on my computer to this day. Um, was just miraculous, you know. I mean, I mean, I, I guess my question is, does it help a photographer to print? Yes. Prints are, I think, extraordinarily important. Uh, but, but a lot of presentation today is just electronic. It, it, what helps you is understanding 
how tonal relationships work and how colors can be intensified or less intensified. And, and that's something that the digital toolbox gave us. We didn't have that in a darkroom area. Like in black and white, you could deal with tonal relationships, contrast, yes. and that. In color, you didn't have much control. You had control over color to a large degree, okay. but not tonal relationships. Oh, really? You just got what you got. Okay. And that was one of the problems with Cibachrome was that it was very contrasty, and in order to shrink it so that you had a manageable range from dark to light, Dynamic you had to range. mask your, your film. Well, when the digital box came out, you could apply everything to black and white and color, and you could control the tonal relationships. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I remember when I was, again, when I was just getting going on stuff, uh, we had some students up, up in Carmel, um, and we were at Brett Weston's house. Mm -hmm. And Brett was known for having these just beautiful, luminous, kind of intense contrast, but beautiful, luminous, silvery-looking prints. Mm -hmm. And somebody, one of the students, asked him about it. How do you get those beautiful, silvery-looking tones in your prints? Mm -hmm. And they were hoping for, I know that they were hoping for, a, a darkroom, techie answer okay. to it. And what they got was the the only really good answer but it didn't help and that was he 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 had an unusual way of, of speaking i can't do a real good imitation of him but he they asked the question and he looked at him and he goes well that's just the way i see it <laughs> and, and it was like yep <laughs> and they were like uh-huh that wasn't what i want <laughs> not what i want <laughs> I've never forgotten that. I thought, I thought, God, that's just amazing, and and it's perfectly true. You have to develop this eye that that allows you to see. And when you print digitally, every every paper that you might try yep. is going to react differently right. to the image, and you have to make adjustments right. to the image to get what you want on that piece of paper. Right. Yes. You know. Yeah, I felt uh, like when, when you showed me that, I felt like, uh, I, I felt there was a correlation between audio engineering and photography in that when you record a drum set, I'm a drummer, it's all compromise. You put mics on there, you put compressors on the mics, you record the drum set. It doesn't sound like a drum set if you sat next to a drum set and listened to it. So now it's on the tape, I'm talking tape days, and then you're going to put that drum set into the mix well, there's frequencies in the drum set that mess with the bass. If you have too much of this yeah. thing that makes it sound like a drum set, you got to start taking away stuff that yeah. the drum set sounds uh -huh. like so the bass can come up. And you don't want to stump on the vocals and et cetera. So by the time you have this mix on a record, on vinyl, yeah. it's this huge compromise. Yes. I felt like printing was a similar... It's not, it's not necessarily a compromise, I don't think. It's, a, it's making something that's appropriate and that meets the, the the goal that you want to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, Ansel Adams used to say that he, and he was a musician also. He was oh, a classically trained that's right. pianist. That's right. Yeah. And um, he, he used to his analogy was the negative is the score. Yes, I've heard. Okay. That. Yeah. And the print 
is the performance. I like that. And, <coughs> and so the performance can change. And, and his, his most famous photograph, Moonrise Hernandez, uh, New Mexico, changed wildly from the early days when he printed it to the end. And it, it, it's known for this, this little moon in a big expanse of black sky with some clouds low in there. Mm -hmm. Well, that, if you just took the negative and put it in the enlarger and printed it, that isn't what it looked like. Okay. The sky was a middle gray and okay. there were more clouds. But eventually, through his working with it over the years, it became more and more and more dramatic, okay? And he, he had a print um, that had uh, gotten misplaced through the darkroom sink and it sat in the, somehow it sat in the bottom of the sink mm -hmm. for days. Okay, and, that can happen. Yeah, and, uh, and he, he, found, he found it after days and looked at it and he goes, wow, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> and and it, it was because all these chemicals had reacted with it, because he'd printed many, many things. All these chemicals had reacted with it. And um, he, the, the one that he pulled out of the bottom of the sink was a one of a kind. It's not, you know, one of the nice things about, potentially about photography, is that you can repeat. Yes. Okay. Yes. It's not like an oil painting where there's the painting. And if it's gone, if you sell that painting, that's it's it. gone. Yeah. Uh, although they make prints from them and that kind of stuff, but mm -hmm. um, but a photograph you can print again and again and again. Right. Uh, this one though, because it had sat in the bottom of the sink for days, was a one of a kind image, yeah. and it was all scrambled and stained and weird. And he just was spontaneous enough to say, "Okay, this is Holocaust out over Hernandez." And because it was a, I saw it, and, and it was a bizarre-looking print. Uh -huh. I don't, and I don't know if the family still has it. Huh. You know, his generation is all gone at this point, right. but his kids are are still alive. So, okay. anyway, and you could never re obviously replicate that if that became no. So and I used to, this used to happen at Cyprus. People would get, you know, that grid in the sink. Yep. Okay, prints would go under that. Oh. And then they would sit there for days, and, <laughs> and stuff I would, would flow over them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I would find them. I have a whole collection of them. That they're just these amazing, wonderful-looking images that are completely accidental and have no connection to the original intent of the picture. But they're extraordinarily beautiful. They're metallic. They're gold and coppery, shiny, and yeah, they're really cool. Looking. Isn't that, in a sense, your your uh, your prompt about the blindfold because you know in uh, this art class I'm taking which I'm horrible at art they have us make mixed colors on a palette and we have to paint a thing to show different color theories uh -huh. I always like the palette better than my picture <laughs> I could see that <laughs> you know what I mean I could go there because I had no yeah. intention of making anything as I'm doing this I'm not fouling it up with my judgment and I'm just thinking I'm doing a thing here and yeah. over here this wonderful thing's yeah. happening that's the nature of, of expressionistic work is that it's it's not about the it's not about what you're painting it's about how you're doing it oh okay. and mm -hmm. and it's the process and, yeah okay and so it be, it becomes a more spontaneous thing 
like a Jackson Pollock that dripped and poured and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. and I, I posted a thing here a couple weeks ago on Facebook about uh, people would look at a, at a Pollock painting and that's all drippy and runny and stuff and they, go, and they would go, I could do that. What is so special about that? I could do that. And, <laughs> and I, and well, no, you can't. <laughs> you can't do that. Right. You, you have no clue. I, I remember when I was a kid, uh, you know, I, I was a, a little kid in the 50s, and I remember abstract expressionist painters. That was a big thing in the art world back then. And it was used, actually, abstract expressionism was used by our government to sort of market, the, and, and it made abstract expressionism bigger, uh, around the world to sort of market American ingenuity and creativity. Okay? And in what sense? I remember those pictures. How, what were they thinking when they were... Because they were, they were innovative and different and new, okay. and they were the cutting edge of, of art. And I, rem I remember my dad sitting, looking at a newspaper, and it had a Jackson Pollock uh, reproduction of a Pollock painting in it in black and white. And he would, and I remember his words to this day. He said, "I just don't get it. A monkey could do that." <laughs> and he wasn't. Why did he think? And that? I looked at it like because it was just all drippy, runny. No, and I know. It seemed so random. Yeah. And and I looked at it and I and, and I didn't say anything to him, but I looked at that and I went, "Wow, that's pretty cool." You saw it. Yeah. And and I could I understood it. Now maybe that's because I was a little kid, and I didn't have built-in notions Yeah, you didn't unlearn things. all this instinct. That, you know, to yeah. me, it was just like, that is cool. I like that. Mm. And and I, to this day, I'm a, a, an expressionist fan. I just mm. love this stuff. And I love the notion that you can just sort of splash things, but you can feel the, the composition of stuff. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite artists, um, his name is Jim Dine, and I think he's still alive. He came from that era, but rather than abstract, mm -hmm. he he painted shapes. Okay. And and his so it wasn't just splashes of paint or, you know, strokes and that. It was shapes that were done with an abstract expressionist feel to them. So okay. like he painted bathrobes. Okay. He painted tools. He painted hearts, you know, that, that shape. And when asked about it, uh, why, why are you not just abstracting the canvas? He said, I'm, I'm different in that sense. Um, I, need, I need to have something to hang the paint on. Mm. So he used the shape to do that, but they were... Structure. Yeah, there was a structure that, that w was lent to it. Now, that's the same guy that back in those days, uh, performance art was a kind of big thing. And uh, he, did, he did a performance piece where he was just painting. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, I, I don't know if I'm getting this exactly right or not. Um, but he, he was painting, and at the same time, he was drinking the paint. And I, I don't think do it that? was. I don't think it was. No, I don't think it was paint. But, <laughs> but he was pretending to be drinking. Oh, because paint. it's performance art. Yeah. Okay. okay and so, right. and what he painted was, as he's drinking the paint and painting, he painted a big canvas that just said, "I love what I'm doing." Hmm. 
And I, I just thought that was the coolest thing mm, yeah. to do. Yeah. That is very cool. Well, I have one last question for you. Yeah. Final question. Um, and thanks again for taking the time to do this. And I respect you immensely. People love to talk about themselves. <laughs> but we're talking about art. Here. Everybody does. <laughs> um, do you do you remember when you saw the light? Like as a photographer, you know, I shot, I assisted for people, and I, I was in photography for a long time before I really understood photography. It sounds yeah. like you kind of had a thing when you were very young with art, but do you remember when you saw really got it? Well, two, a couple things. First, I, I was extraordinarily fortunate in an unconscious way when when I was a little kid. Uh, um, my dad was a dentist, and I originally planned on following his path and, and to be a dentist. Uh, it's a really good thing that I didn't do that, but uh, but as a dentist, he he and some of his friends, they had you know he he made a pretty darn good living. Yes. So yeah. so he had a, a fair amount of disposable income and he and some of his friends would go on these hunting trips up to Carmel. Mm -hmm. And they managed to hire as a guide mm -hmm. um, a fellow by the name of Cole Weston who mm -hmm. was one of Edward Weston's sons. Okay, so okay. relation there. Yeah. And, yeah, and he was a he was a theater director and he jack of all trades. And uh, he he, he managed a trout farm he had a trout farm oh. <clears throat> and so my dad and cole became friends and cole uh, eventually uh through another one of my dad's friends who, who was a, a vendor at knott's berry farm cole started a trout farm at knott's berry farm down here oh wow so uh so you knew that guy i remember that yeah and cole had a whole bunch of kids and he and he didn't make a hell of a lot of money so he, when he needed dental work done, he would go to my dad and he'd bring the kids, but he didn't have the money to yeah. pay the bills. Yeah. So he traded to my dad a, a portfolio of Edward Weston photographs wow. for, the, for the dental bills. And it, two things happened out of that. One, I got to know Cole and, and we stayed friends until he passed. And, and he stayed friends with my dad too. Plus I got to see when I was seven years old, these little eight by 10 contact prints of Edward Weston's and they were stunningly gorgeous to me. And I just literally really attached to them. But I never thought that I could make a living doing that. And obviously Edward Weston, the, the most money that he ever made in one year in his whole life was $5,000. Is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and you know, he had grants and, and that kind of stuff that kind of kept him going, but he lived this very frugal life. Well, I didn't think that, that I could do that until after I got out of college uh, and was kind of planning on dental school uh, and I was ready to go. I took, uh, I, I always liked photography, and I took a photography class, and it happened to be taught by, you'll recognize the name, I think, John Sexton. Oh, right. And it was in adult ed here in Fullerton. Yes. And it was in the basement of the Muckenthaler Cultural Arts Center. And, uh, and I just, I fell completely in love. He made it so interesting. Uh, 
and and just captivating that I said I I have to find a way to do this. And after I got involved with it, and then I asked him, I said, John, you know, I really want to do this. And and he, and he and I had become friends. And I said, John, so wh where where would I go now? And his answer was Cypress College. Right. Uh, Why so, did he say that? Because he had gone there. That's that's where he had gone to school, and he, he had gone on then to Chapman, Chapman University or Chapman College. And um, it was a it was a good program, and I went through the program, and and. Uh, I wanted to find a way to make a living in photography. I, I originally wanted to, to do something that connected to biology. I wanted to do, become a biological photographer, but the schools for that were all in the east. Okay. So uh, I, I went to Cyprus and I started to learn commercial stuff and you know got a way to make a living. Also, in John Sexton's class, that first class that I took, I reconnected with a friend of mine from high school who you may have met over at Cyprus because he's been over there several times, Bob Neese, Robert Neese. Oh, I, I might have met him, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we, we had been friends in high school. I had no idea that he was in photography. And th this first class, the, f the, the first photography class that I took was the first class that John taught. Mm. And Bob Neese was in it. And mm. it wasn't his first class, but it, but it was mine. We reconnected. And we became friends. And where this is going is uh, Bob and I were best friends for many, many years. And Bob asked me one time, uh, he, he said, so we got involved in this and we're doing this now. He said, when did you know you had it? And that goes back to your question. And I said, you know, Bob, I made a photograph of muddy water that was running in my parents' flower bed. Mm -hmm. And I made this print, and I got the print, I got the print to look exactly the way I wanted. And it was at that moment, I knew I could do this. Mm -hmm. And I was then, I, I was set. Right. And I could make images look the way I wanted them to look. Right. Whether yeah, it was control. lighting, yeah. or printing, or, or whatever. Because mm -hmm. there's always, I, I guess, he was asking me the question because he had had his own moment when it dawned on him, hey, I can do this. Mm -hmm. Right. And that was my moment, was wow. this, this, this little 8x10 print that I made. I can do this. It's because you knew that it was a thing that you could do it again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can make this work. Mm -hmm. That's cool. And, and I could have that as my life rather than being a dentist. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, that connected to the music and all of that, too. Were you doing music back then? or? Yeah, oh, yeah. I, but not, oh, I wasn't you, doing recording back then. No, but, no. Um, you said you started piano when you were five or seven or something like that? Seven years old. Seven. Yeah. Okay. My dad made me a deal. Uh, I, I took piano for a, a few years. I absolutely hated it. I just, <laughs> God, I just hated it. Well, it's not it. fun to study piano. <laughs> Not and, supposed to be fun. And so I finally quit. And then my dad came to me when I was 12 years old. Yeah. And he said, I think that you have talent at this, and I would like you to, to go back and take lessons. And if you take lessons until you graduate from high school, I will buy you a car. Oh, that's awesome. And so I said, okay, Dad. <laughs> 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 what a deal. 
What kind of makes me interested about that is that your dad, number one, supported art, which is that not a lot of dads support or understood art as an occupation. Yeah, even though he was the one that said a monkey could do that Jackson right. Pollock painting. but He must have liked art or he must have saw something in you. Or... He was really good at drawing and okay. very, very good with detail in his hands and stuff. He, he could draw, draw very realistic things. But, it, but his... he attached to the realism. He couldn't right. deal with the abstract. the abstract. Right, right. Yeah. So he was an artist. That's cool. Yeah. Um, I think, again, I'm going to turn this off.